Greetings, friends. Welcome to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast, where good taste and bad taste have a special effect. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. Uh, I don't have a cute nickname, but that's what I am. I am a film critic. And with me, as always, is my scintillating, intelligent, and handsome co-host. Where? William, why don't you introduce yourself? Because that doesn't describe me at all, but okay. My name is William Bibiani. I am also a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs, and welcome to our 150th episode. It's our sesquicentennial episode. Sure, I can make up words. Uh, it's, our, it's our flingy, flangy, flutal Sesqu- episode. Sesquicentennial is the name You can just say 150, for, uh, 150, dude. 150 takes Ses- less time to sesquicentennial say. Sesquicentennial is so much more fun to say. Oh, my Lean, lean into the $4 words. Okay, fine. That's not a $4 word. That's an $8 word. Moving on. <laughs> We've got, on this week, on critically acclaimed new movie reviews of Mank, Freaky, Jingle Jangle, The Climb, The Life Ahead, Ammonite, and on the critically acclaimed streaming club, where we catch up to older movies that one or both of us have never seen, we watched the Will Smith, Kevin Klein Western classic, Wild Wild West. The word classic officially has no meaning anymore. Now it just means kind of old. <laughs> it just means over 12 years old. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll be talking about Wild Wild West, which I've never seen in its entirety, and I have now, and I have regrets about my profession. <laughs> Look, we, uh, we put up polls we for do. this show. We Every put week. up polls online uh, on our Patreon to let people vote on what film we're going to watch. Mm-hmm. So we actually have a little bit of control over what films we get to watch. It's one of four. Yeah. So, you know, you don't have to put like a big poo <laughs> right in the middle I of these polls. I want people to have the option. They have the option, <laughs> you see. Yeah, well, if, if we if we put down three diamonds in a poo, guess what one they're going to pick? Often <laughs> Not one of the diamonds. Look, look, look. Anyone can pick a diamond. I suppose it's so. like it's right there. It's all shiny. It's like standing out. It's like no, 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 no. It's this is the this is the tree that Charlie Brown picked on Christmas. Oh, I see. It just yeah. needs a little bit of extra love. A little bit of extra love and a huge makeover remake. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or or just, just make needs, it look not like itself at all. Or just needs to be shoved aside and forgotten in the annals of history. Anyway, we'll be talking about that in a little bit. Uh, we don't have anything special planned for our 150th episode. Other than reviewing films. Which is what which we is, do and special mm. in and of itself. And we love doing it. And thank you very, very much for joining us on that journey. But we do want to say that's a lot of episodes. And we are incredibly grateful to you for joining us for those episodes. And thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you very much. And uh, coming up in a couple months, we'll have been podcasting for a decade. So we should probably do something special for that in, in one form or another. This is not uh, just the Critically Acclaimed Network. It's various I'll, things. I'll, we'll have a cookie. We'll, we'll eat a cookie. We'll on, eat one on, cookie on, on the air. No, not on the air. That's gross. All right, <laughs> moving on. We need to get into some reviews because we have a lot to cover this week. It's a big week. Four new movies. We had a couple of major releases that ended up, uh, you know, one they're actually in theaters if you can find them. But now they're they're here and we can watch them and their reviews and their movies. Let's talk about what's 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 bigger, Mank or Freaky? Um, in our circles, Freaky is being talked about more, but Mank is the bigger deal. Well, let's start with Mank, I guess. All right. Man, I, what is Mank? Mank is the sound Burgess Meredith made on the Batman TV series. Mank, 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 Mank. Mank. That's all we could. That's all my wife and I could say when we were watching Mank. Mank is the uh, is a biopic directed by David Fincher. It was written by his his late father. Yeah. He brushed off an old script that his father had written back in the '90s and decided to make it. I don't know if it was changed much, but it 
feels like a 90s biopic. It, it really, uh, really does. It's my understanding that there was at least a polish okay. done on the script. Uh, but it is, Mank is Herman Mankiewicz, the screenwriter of Citizen Kane, and other things as well. But he's best I, Co-writer known, of Citizen co-writer, Kane. Co-writer, co-credited screenwriter of Citizen Kane. Well, that's kind of what the movie is about. And, so. uh, and in fact, uh, Herman Mankiewicz's uh, acceptance speech when he won an Academy Award for Citizen Kane, the only award it won... Uh, was that he was happy to accept the award the same way the screenplay was written in the absence of Orson Welles. So there was a little bit of a beef between he and Orson Welles. Orson Welles does appear in the picture, but he's not a major figure. No, he's uh, in actually fact, in it surprisingly little. In mm. fact, I'd, I'd hesitate to say he was in it for more than like 10% of the movie. Yeah, like he's on the phone a couple times. Uh, the framing device is uh, Herman Mankiewicz is uh, laid up in bed with a horrendous hip injury following a car accident, mm-hmm. like hip and legs, just his, his whole lower right. half was destroyed. And uh, he was, during that time, uh, asked to write the screenplay for Citizen Kane, which he wrote as American. Uh, and that was the original title. The original title. Yeah. And during this process, we get to see flashbacks as to how he came to uh, become an, an embattled screenwriter and sort of his political journey as to how he accumulated and formed his political views and how that... Uh, informed his writing of Citizen Kane. Because Citizen Kane, for those of you who may not have Mm. seen Citizen Kane or don't recall it very well, Citizen Kane is a movie that is often considered the very best motion picture ever made. And I would not dispute that very hard. It's an incredible motion picture. Mm. It is a biopic of a fictional newspaper mogul played by Orson Welles, who also directed the film and is the credited co-writer. And uh, it is about his rise to untold heights of monopolistic avarice where he basically owned pretty much all of the media mm. in the in the America in the America I almost said the world but I don't think that's true but the America yes yeah. um I'm happy he, to I'm happy to live in the America yeah he was one of the most powerful and influential people in the world but he also had a lot of you know human frailties he was also kind of a monster in some ways some people loved him. Some people hated him. So they took the this person and they based him off of real-life newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst. Who appears in this movie as uh, played by Charles Dance. Yeah. Uh, William Randolph Hearst famously noticed the similarity and was not happy mm-hmm. and uh, tried to get the movie destroyed. Actually tried to get it pulled entirely. Uh, it did not work. Uh, the movie did end up getting released. It won one Academy Award. Uh, it was pretty much praised critically when it arrived, but it didn't play in a lot of theaters. It got shuffled off to the side as much as possible. And in fact, it would take about 10, 15 years for its reputation to be salvaged by critics who were suddenly saying, hey, you ever notice that that's the best movie ever made? <laughs> And it's been considered the best ever since, or at least until 2012, when Vertigo surpassed it on the Sight and Sound poll. Yeah. Uh, A a decision that I still disagree with. I'm willing to bet it's going to have a resurgence in two years' time. I'm willing to bet Vertigo will not be number one again. But in any case, uh, it's a huge motion picture. The the idea that it is a thinly veiled biopic of William Randolph Hearst has been... Resoundingly proven. It's it's pretty much proven. Everyone pretty much admitted that's what they were doing. And the movie Mank, in its flashbacks, doesn't just tell you how Herman Mankiewicz became, you know, the writer of Citizen Kane, but also tells you how he came to, at first, become like a treasured court jester at William Randolph Hearst's uh, estate, San Simeon, this giant mansion full of incredible treasures 
where he used to have people over for dinner parties all the time, people from Hollywood, people from mm. everywhere. Uh, and Mankiewicz was a commonly seen face at those parties because he was a well-known wit. Um, but uh, over the course of their life and over the course of the film, Mankiewicz really soured on Hearst. And this movie posits that Citizen Kane wasn't just a thinly veiled you know, biopic of a famous person he happened to know, but was indeed his kind of karmic revenge mm -hmm. that this would be how Hearst would be remembered after Hearst screwed Mankiewicz over. And as Mankiewicz views it, at least in this film, uh, screwed over California and prevented California from becoming, uh, as the movie frames it, a socialist utopia under would-be governor Upton Sinclair. Played in the movie by... Oh, who? Bill Nye the Science Guy. Oh, is that who it was? Yeah, okay, I he's, I he's only in one scene. I thought but, yeah. he looked familiar. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Um, but uh, yeah, Upton Sinclair, uh, uh, campaign for governor. Uh, Hearst and a lot of the uh, Hollywood types who had a lot to gain from not having socialism in California uh, put the kibosh on that. And over the course of the film, we realized that without realizing it, Herman Mankiewicz may have indeed given them their best idea for how to make Upton Sinclair go away. Mm. <laughs> um, this is, I think you put it real well. This is a nineties biopic in that mm. it really feels like a lot of passion went into this. A lot of effort went into this. A lot of great acting is in this. Um, you've got I think it, Amanda Seyfried, I think is the real star. She plays Marion Davies. She stands out. Actually, uh, this is a good role is, for her. Uh, Marion Davies historically has sort of accumulated the role as simply Hearst's girlfriend. And I say yeah. that with quote air quotes, um, in that she was just sort of like a hanger on. She was this sort of non-entity. She had a lot of talent and a lot of energy and a lot of wherewithal. Yeah, she was and not. A, she was not a. Tro she, he didn't actually marry her because mm. he was still married and his wife wouldn't give him a divorce. Uh, in Citizen Kane, he married her. Uh, but uh, yeah, she she wasn't a trophy wife. She wasn't even a trophy girlfriend. She was just an interesting, fascinating person. Yeah, and who had I'm, a complicated relationship with this man. And I'm really glad that uh, Amanda Seyfried uh, was able to give so much life and energy to Marion Davies, mm -hmm. kind of rescuing her reputation in a lot of ways. I actually think in many respects, she's the best part of this movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I think so. It's not Gary Oldman. Uh, no. Weirdly enough, Gary Oldman is doing... Uh, he's doing his work. He's doing mm -hmm. his due diligence. I feel like he's mumbling his way through this role a lot. Not really bringing a lot of righteous indignation to Herman Mankiewicz that is in the script. He just sort of seems mm -hmm. to be sleepwalking through a lot of scenes. And then when he gives his big speech at the end, he's, he's drunk mm -hmm. and Oldman is playing it for drunk rather than <laughs> outraged. And yeah. the, the climax of the film is where he is drawing a lot of strong parallels between uh, Hearst, Upton Sinclair, the, you know, the, the whole uh, deal with what's going on politically at the time and the story of Don Quixote. And he gives this yeah. big uh, impassioned, long description describing what's going on in, with people in the room and the story how Hearst of Don himself was an just, idealist who let himself yeah, and, fall from grace and now, and now he's, he's destroying, destroying these bad not ideas, Sinclair, yeah. but the person he used to be. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and of course all of those things are also in Citizen Kane. So yeah. it's all this big Hollywood, uh, three stories coming together, one kind of mm. speech, but Gary Oldman is, like I said, playing it for drunk. He's playing it like a little bit too tipsy. He sounds a little bit like he's ranting. More he actually than he's comes across a, a little uncomplicated, which is frustrating. Yeah. Um, actually, I think that's one of the things with the movie that I find frustrating is that it ultimately, 
Uh, David Fincher has thrown all the polish on this thing. It is mm. filmed really gorgeously uh, by uh, cinematographer Eric Messerschmidt. Um, it's filmed in gorgeous black and white, wonderful framing, beautiful mm. mise-en-scene. The production design is incredible. The costumes are incredible. It looks mm. really cool. But... Well, here's what I'm arguing, though. I think all of it looks really, really cool. But I actually argue that what we're, what we're actually seeing comes across as a little hollow and they're trying to throw all of this flash on top of something that is actually frustratingly straightforward. This doesn't have, you know, the complicated multi-narrative structure of Citizen Kane. It's actually, it's, it's actually almost frustratingly simple mm. where the whole framing device is Mankiewicz in bed trying to get this thing written under this harsh deadline that he's got mm. forming a relationship with his typist, uh, who it's has Lily Collins yeah, in the movie? Who is who has uh, you know a husband in the war and will or he or will he not survive? Which eerily enough, and I'm sure this is a coincidence given when Mank was written, uh, that's exactly the subplot of one of the characters in Darkest Hour, who was also <laughs> basically like Oldman's typist or or receptionist or, or personal assistant. Which weird. is which is just a weird parallel. Yeah. I, I, again, I don't blame the movie for that because they were written so far away from mm. each other. But it's funny. Um, but, um, yeah, ultimately what it boils down to is, and he wrote Citizen Kane, and here's why he wrote Citizen Kane, and then you find out why he wrote Citizen Kane, and then he says, I wrote Citizen Kane, and then we're done. And it's, I, I guess the argument is that Herman Mankiewicz was the one who put the heart and soul and anger into Citizen Kane, but I f also feel like it's weird that we're putting all of this effort and emotion and self-righteous anger over Herman Mankiewicz's role in Citizen Kane when we're only covering Citizen Kane up through the uh, the writing of the first draft. Right, which was like 375 pages or something. Yeah. It wasn't through the making of the film. We didn't get to hear what how Herman Mankiewicz felt about the film while it was being made, how mm -hmm. involved he was in the process. We don't process. get to see how people changed it, that they make changes that he didn't like where does it go here? Because I feel like the first draft is the only place where this kind of pure, almost hero worshipy kind of story can really live. Because once you get into the collaborative process of filmmaking, Herman Mankiewicz's oh. whole like narrative starts to feel like a small part of a larger story. I, I do appreciate though, that uh, this is, I mean, it, it's a film by a screenwriter. It's about a screenwriter, mm -hmm. so it's going to make the screenwriter the hero. Of course it is. And as such, it takes a little bit of a dim view of Orson Welles, mm -hmm. who often is credited as this master auteur who's always in control of all of his own projects. He was the one brainchild behind everything. Uh, so I do appreciate that they're trying to take him down a peg. That's something uh, that Tim Robbins' film Cradle Rock also did, mm -hmm. kind of cast uh, Orson Welles as... Yes, he's a mastermind, but he's like kind of a maniac who's always badgering people. And John Hausman is actually the one who's contributing a lot of the ideas and keeping everything in control. So uh, I do appreciate. I kind of feel like Orson Welles put... ended up doing that himself in The Other Side of the Wind, though. When yeah, he basically yeah. cast himself as like a there's a thinly veiled version of himself in that movie. Mm -hmm. That movie is basically Orson Welles doing Citizen Kane, except he's making the protagonist not a thinly veiled version of hers, but a thinly veiled version of himself. Mm. And he's basically just saying, this guy's an asshole. and like I, a I, raving I, asshole, <laughs> like a big asshole. And, and, and like, he's, he's re and he's not apologizing, movie, just no. saying that I'm an asshole. And, his, and that's just sort of the way I do things. And his work is uncommercial. And maybe it's interesting, but it's hard to follow. And <laughs> he just kind of attracts a whole bunch of 
like whiny film critic types who like either praise him or mock him or do both. And really ultimately what has he contributed except a bunch of pretentious stuff. It's actually a really <laughs> self-critical yeah. story. The other side of the wind is really great, by the way. It is. Uh, you said Mank looks really great. I think it's photographed really beautifully. Yeah. And I did see this on a TV. If I had seen it on a big screen, probably could have appreciated the detail in the photography a little bit better. I think this film is dull to look at, frankly. Mm. Yeah, um, that's kind of what I was getting at. I think it's, it's, I think it's, it's a looking to a fault. It's, it's a, but here's the thing. You know, we know David Fincher for like these really dynamic films. You look at some of his films from like the 90s you look at something like Fight Club where the camera is just whirling and the colors are all kind of bizarre and a little off kilter uh, you look at something like Panic Room where the camera just sort of floats through this 3D space and we really get to know that apartment really really well uh, here I think he, there's that wonderful shot in Zodiac where uh, we see the letter like go into the mm. letter bin and the camera kind of stays in the letter bin yeah. as it goes through the whole office there's nothing like the camera is still in Mank. Yeah. It's always these locked down, boring shots. And maybe he's trying to recreate sort of filmmaking styles of the 1940s. Oh, he seems to be. I think that's a but, fair assessment. But if he's going to do that, maybe he should also light it like 1940s and mm-hmm. not make it look like he's making it in 2020 with maybe, digital yeah. cameras like, and, 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 like and lighting. And shots that are appropriate for exactly. that. Because it, so it doesn't really of, come fully across. It feels like six of, six of one, but not half yeah, a dozen so of the other. There's a lot of these dull, really kind of utilitarian lockdown shots. Yeah. And dialogue scenes in large spaces where we're just sort of cutting from stills, uh, like just had these boring flat angles of people just sort of talking. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how we're supposed to engage with something like this, because it's actually not interesting to engage with. I feel like the dialogue isn't sort of Sorkin-esque where it's really kind of nabbing you by the skin. There's some good writing here in the dialogue. I do like a lot of the writing here. There's one walk and talk, very West wing walk and talk scene with Louis B. Mayer uh, early in the, in the movie, but it's the only one. Yeah. There there aren't other shots like that in the movie. No, no, I do. I do like a lot of the dialogue though. Um, I feel as though what we have here is a script that is ultimately, it's got that sort of great man biopic problem, which if you don't know the term, great man is is, some, is a term that you're supposed to avoid when you're mm. writing about history. Uh, the great man theory of history is basically just, we're going to look at history through the lens of, look at how much this person did. Mm. This person did all these amazing things. Weren't they great? Because that is almost universally devoid of context. Uh, one person didn't do anything there's always something else at play some other influence some other collaborator uh, someone who was pushing them someone who was like standing in their way there is always more to the story than just one person's Mm. perspective this movie is very very much told exclusively from Mankiewicz's perspective Mm. and as a result it ends up feeling weirdly insular and I think that's one of the reasons why Fincher has gone so overboard trying to layer style. I find Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score a bit too oppressive <laughs> on this. Like they're 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 making sure you know this is important mm. as opposed to just letting the story prove that. Because ultimately, I mean, it's basically arguing that Herman Mankiewicz is the reason we don't live in a socialist utopia. That is a <laughs> great man story right there, and that is something that is a bit shameless about this. And I can kind of get away with that if it has, I don't know, the moxie. Like, a a movie I think of, um, when I think of really great underappreciated biopics, is uh, Get On Up, starring the late Chadwick Boseman as James Brown. 
That is a movie. movie. That's a great movie. movie, And that is a movie that just shows you every amazing, unbelievable, and sometimes genuinely terrible and unforgivable thing James Brown did. But it's telling you that in this sort of wild, drunken speech. Like, you're just like... like, like if you were drinking with James Brown and he just told you all the amazing stuff that happened in his life. And but as a result, but completely out of order and yeah. a little bit jumbled up. It and yeah. feels the, the rambling quality of that film feels honest about how uh, um, sort of what's what I'm looking for here, sort of self-obsessed it is. Mm-hmm. And I feel here the movie is no. self-obsessed, but it is presented as though and it's like stentorian you know, important history as opposed to just only one perspective on it. Um, And I'm not even saying I disagree with a lot of the stuff in this movie. This movie is very largely based off of a work by Pauline Kael called Raising Cain, K-A-N-E, which is something that she wrote that basically argued that Orson Welles didn't write Citizen Kane. Herman Mankiewicz did all of it, and Orson Welles slapped his name on that. Keep in mind, Pauline Kael was anti-auteur theory. Very that's, anti-auteur that's, yeah. theory. And this and and this work of hers, which did its job and really raised questions about all of this, has largely been discredited as something that wasn't heavily researched and they, they didn't go into a lot of detail, sort of making sure everything Mankiewicz asserted was accurate. And as a result, the movie that we seem to have gotten from this influence is kind of self-centered in a not very interesting way. And ultimately, I feel like what we've got here is... You saw that movie RKO 281, right? Uh, it's been a while, but yeah. it's a, a, Was it Showtime that put that out? I think or was it was HBO. HBO? I think it was All HBO. Right. There is a made-for-TV movie that came out in the late 1990s called RKO 281, starring Liv Schreiber as Orson Welles. And it was about the making of Citizen Kane from the perspective of Orson Welles, because... He was the protagonist of that uh, uh, biopic. It was supposed to be a big movie. I think Ridley Scott was supposed to direct it, but it ended up not getting the budget that they needed, so they ended up making it on home video. It's got a really good cast. James Cromwell plays Hearst. Um, And it covers kind of like the whole shebang, but it feels like a TV movie. Hmm. It feels like it's just racing along, giving you like a lot of bullet points. That's one kind of TV movie. Another kind of TV movie is the sort of locked room framing device like oh uh how are we going to tell the story of uh audrey hepburn well there was, was about one t- this one pitch session she yeah. had that was really significant well there was there's actually an audrey hepburn biopic starring jennifer love hewitt that was made for tv in which uh she is trying to prove to truman capote that she's the right person to play holly golightly in uh breakfast at tiffany's mm. and so she's telling her him her life story and that's the framing device and it feels kind of like that this feels like a tv movie a pretty a well-written tv movie but a TV movie in terms of its scope that has been given like the $100 million Hollywood gloss yeah. treatment yeah. and just sort of hide the fact that this actually feels really insular and small and kind of one-sided to a fault when really they could have made that the exciting point, like in Man on the Moon, where they flat out admit at the beginning of the movie, we have changed, like, Andy Kaufman is the subject of that biopic. Mm. Well, and who is naughty and, and subversive and lied a lot about yeah. sort of his identity. A, yeah. a lot of his entertainment and his humor was based around sub- subverting Pr- audience expectations. Yeah. And at the beginning of the movie, Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman comes out to the audience and just says... Uh, I hate this movie. <laughs> this movie yeah. is a mess. This movie changes all the important events of my life around for dramatic purposes. 
And then he basically just says, enjoy. Like, he says, he actually says, we're not going to watch the movie. And he ends up doing an Andy Kaufman bit. But then the movie begins anyway. But that one, they're upfront about what they're doing. And here, it just, it, because David Fincher is doing it, because the music and the cinematography sound so important, it just invites you not to question it. But all of the material feels questionable because of how subjective it is. All right. And that doesn't work for me. Yeah, I'm... I'm... I was kind of upset. Um, this looked to be like the big Hollywood shoe-in, didn't it? Uh, yeah. uh, how many films are there about screenwriters that don't die in a pool? Um, there's, <laughs> there's a few. There's a, there's there's a, a few. few. There's uh, Barton a few. Fink is a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's a few others. But um, this is about a real Hollywood screenwriter, about his real politic. And yeah. it feels... Trumbo. So, oh, well, right. Trumbo. Um, yeah. It's also not a great movie. Documentary uh, is better. Uh but uh, yeah, it, it it just feels like it is going through these motions. I feel like you can get anything that's in Mank from just watching Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. It's in there already. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, you can watch Citizen Kane. Uh, you can watch Cradle Will Rock. Uh, you can watch um, me Arche- and Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Archeo uh, 2 one's got some of yeah, this in there. It's... All, all of the other movies about... Orson Welles and the people in his orbit, I think, reveal more about the politic of the time mm-hmm. and the things that inform Citizen Kane better than Mank, which is directly talking about it. Yeah. There's a, there's what I, the one other thing I do admittedly like about this movie, and again, I, I don't hate this movie. I just don't think it quite works. Yeah. Um, it's not a, like a pain to watch. No, no, it's no, just no, a no. little perfunctory. I, I think, I think it's aim, it's telling you that it's aiming so high that the fact that it doesn't get there is mm. worth discussing and how it doesn't achieve what I think it's trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, again, I think Amanda Seyfried is actually really great. I think Marion Davis comes across as a really interesting character here, where sometimes she doesn't in these kinds of stories. Um, the stuff that I liked most about this, though, was all the little Hollywood stuff. Like, it's a golden age of Hollywood nerd. <laughs> like, seeing all these scenes behind the scenes at Paramount and all of the making of these movies. And uh, there's a fun bit where, um, is it Irving Thalberg? Who's like, uh, 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 there's a scene where Mank goes into one of the producer's office. I think it's Thalberg. And mm. he's like messing around in his fireplace because he's got one of those giant offices <laughs> and he immediately calls his secretary and says uh uh Susan, forget her name. Susan, never ever let the Marx Brothers hang out in my office again. They use the fire pit to roast hot dogs, <laughs> and I'm like, that's I like that stuff. That's yeah, the fun. Really. That makes it feel lived in. That makes it feel like you were excited to tell these stories and put us in this world. If this were like a mid '90s biopic directed by Sidney Pollack, I don't know whoever would have okay, made yeah. it at the time. Yeah, they probably um, did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> Then we would have had cameos by the Marx Brothers. Yeah. We actually would have seen oh, that like stuff. in Chaplin, yeah, or even, or even yeah. the Aviator, which has a ton of unnecessary. Yeah, something like cameos. that. Like, yeah. the, it, and now it would be a celebrity, but you know, just cast yeah. some lookalikes as the Marx Brothers as they bustle out of the office. Oh my goodness, Hollywood is so wacky. You know, <laughs> just have those moments. It would have yeah. made the film a lot more exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun that that dialogue's in there, but you know, I want a little more energy to this yeah. film. It feels so blah. Yeah, it's just it's just kind of fun when you're watching a scene and a whole bunch of people in a room, and then someone says one line of dialogue, and you realize that that's Shirley Temple. No, oh, there, and then it's yeah. like, oh, 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 that's that's fun. Right, that's fun. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the movie itself, again, I think it mm. aims high and it hits lower than that. Mm. Uh, let's move on. Let's talk about the other big release this week, Freaky. 
Freaky. Uh, Freaky is the Blumhouse Freaky Friday. Yeah. They already did the Blumhouse Groundhog Day. Uh, uh, that Blum- was called Happy Happy Death Day. They also did the Blumhouse Fantasy Island, which they called Blumhouse's Fantasy Blum- Island. It was actually called Blumhouse's <laughs> Fantasy Island. Now, um, Blumhouse's Fantasy Island was, it's Fantasy Island. You get to go to this beautiful beach resort, but really they can make your darkest fantasies come true with some sort of eldritch magic, I mm-hmm. think. Like, I've always hated my rival. Well, now you can torture and kill them in this basement room. Fantasy fulfilled. Wait, did you actually see that one? Because I no, missed it. No, I just okay. saw the, the previews. Okay. Uh, that just That was the premise of that movie. I never got around to it. Uh, then they did uh, Happy Death Day, which was Blumhouse's Groundhog Day. Uh, a college student finds that she's repeating the same day over and over again. Uh, and every single day yeah. she's getting murdered by a slasher villain. Uh, yeah, and at the end, and it's it's her birthday, and at the end of the day, she's going to be murdered by a slasher villain, and then wake it's, up. It's more comedy than horror. Like the mm-hmm. horror actually plays a small part of it, but, but it's definitely a horror comedy, yeah, she, and it's a really good horror it's, comedy. It has a lot of of wit and excitement and clever ways of looking at a premise that has become kind of a standard Hollywood boilerplate. Mm-hmm. Freaky is now the Freaky Friday standard Hollywood boilerplate. They're, this is the, uh, the next in their series of these. Mm-hmm. Surely we can come up with a name for this subgenre of Blumhouse movies at some point. Uh, this uh, cycle of films. Why scare Nah, it doesn't work. It's only there's a there's a YA kind of YA exclamation point exclamation point yeah yeah and this and it's also worth noting that this is from the director of Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to you. Uh, who had previously done uh, Paranormal Activity, the marked ones, which was not a good film. Mm. So I'm very excited that he's doing a yeah. good film now. And uh, well, he's done a couple of good yeah. films because the Happy Death Day movies are great. The Freaky Friday premise here is that uh, there's a masked slasher, very Jason Voorhees like, uh, played by Vince Vaughn, mm. who's stalking around murdering people. In an opening scene, he murders some teenagers in a mansion looking for an enchanted dagger. Well, I don't think. I think that's actually or, coincidence. I think. Just oh, okay. Gra- they just it, have an enchanted dagger. You know, you know dagger. like slashers will just pick up whatever they can find to okay. kill you, and like throughout the movie, this, the killer actually does that. Right. I so think they got- just happen to be at a rich person's house. That person collected rare antiquities, and they end mm. up picking an ancient dagger. Uh-huh. And they take it with them. And then we meet our protagonist, okay. uh, Millie. Played by Catherine Newton, who's really good in this movie. She's great. Uh, she uh, is unpopular at her school, which is a, a twist on the formula, isn't it? Usually uh, mm-hmm. we get sort of the mean girl who learns to be nice. Um, this is, often. Often. Yeah, she, uh, well, in terms of the Freaky Friday thing, for mm-hmm. slasher movies, it's actually quite common. Uh, okay. Yeah, you know, like you know, uh, but she's uh, she's Laurie uh, Strode or oh, Nev yeah, Campbell yeah, she, and Scream. They weren't the popular kids at their school. Yeah, she's a little bit of an outsider. People make fun of her. People are spreading rumors about her that aren't true. Uh, and she's also the mascot at uh, the the, t- the her local school sporting events. So, so she's like dressed in like a big mm, puffy beaver costume. Yeah. When her her deadbeat dad forgets to pick her up, mom. or deadbeat mom, excuse yeah. me. When her deadbeat mom forgets to pick her up after a game one evening, uh, Vince Vaughn shows up with that dagger, chases her out into the football field, stabs her, lightning strikes them, and they switch bodies. Yeah. Now, it takes, like, 24 hours for them to really kind of figure out what's going on. Which feels like a contrivance, but okay. But they wake up in the morning in each other's bodies. And, of course, uh, she wakes up in, like a weird, creepy, abandoned warehouse full of, like, <laughs> like mannequins that have been mutilated. Right, right. And, so, and she wakes up in the body of Vince Vaughn, the killer. The killer wakes up in Millie's body and in a wonderful sequence just silently walks through the house <laughs> grabbing <laughs> knives and everyone's like, oh, thank you for that knife, Millie. I'll finish your breakfast now. And she's like, 
Oh, okay. So there's all <laughs> shades of Jason goes to hell. Um, yeah, actually, yeah. J- Jason goes to hell, which is the one where Jason it's does body swap bodies. Villain, yeah. yeah, it changes the premise of the whole series. It's not a good film. Um, Catherine Newton as the killer is my favorite part of this movie. She's funny. She's really, really funny. She gets to she plays you know a young person very well. She is a young person, but mm-hmm. when she gets to be the killer, she changes her stance. Yeah, she looks like glowers a lot. The way she responds to people is really like genuinely threatening Mm -hmm. it's not just she's saying creepy stuff she's actually playing the killer she's playing two different parts Um, and that's important to do i you you know everything ever since like you know freaky friday they did it too but i think Mm. there's like a standard now where people realize that like even in something like face off like which is ludicrous but you want to feel like nicholas cage is giving a different mm. performance when he's being quote-unquote played by john travolta's character i heard that that uh John Travolta and Nicolas Cage had to work together a lot because yeah. they're both playing each other's characters. Exactly. And they said, well, how are we going to do the walk? Who, who, like, who, how do these characters walk? Because we have to sort of change our gates. And for the Nicolas Cage character, they just went with Nicolas Cage's walk because it turns out he's really threatening anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so right. John Travolta learned to walk that way. I, um, so Catherine Winnick is really putting a lot of that. Catherine Newton. Or, Catherine Newton, excuse me. <laughs> it's Catherine Winnick. She's a different actress. Okay. Um, She's putting a lot of that kind of menace into uh, into that part. Um, yeah. Vince Vaughn, I wish he was having more fun. Oh, really? Uh, he's He wakes up and he's now playing a teenage girl. And mm. there is a chance here to not necessarily camp it up, but put a lot of energy in it to mm-hmm. really put a, 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 a certain part of complex physicality into his role that I think he's not really committed to. I, I, I disagree with it. Mm. I think I think it's... It's in the script why that mm. is. I think, first off, unlike uh, Catherine Newton, who we get to see her before and after this big change, we only saw Vince Vaughn's character when he was in, like, killer mode. Uh-huh. So we're really not getting, like, a major shift in performance for him. So the contrast, it doesn't pop as much. But also, Millie, as we meet her at the beginning of the movie, isn't a particularly, like outgoing, physically expressive person. She's actually rather meek and reserved. And as a result, he actually doesn't have as broad a thing to play with. The the movie I kept thinking about, actually, when I was watching this, wasn't Freaky Friday. Mm. It was actually The Hot Chick. I was thinking of that, too. Yeah, this is like a scary version of The is, Hot Chick more than it is a horror movie version of Freaky I, Friday. I haven't seen all of The Hot Chick. I've seen enough to know I don't need to see the rest. But... Uh, <laughs> I know that Rob Schneider commits. Yeah. He commits in that. He actually is, dare I say, good. That's actually not playing a a teenage girl. That's actually probably his best starring role in a movie. Mm. Like that's actually the movie actually has some interesting ideas. Yeah, a lot of it doesn't work, but more of it does than you'd think. mm. And a lot of it is because they commit not just to Rob Schneider like playing a woman in his body, which yeah, that's comical, but they find a certain truth to that after a while. Um, but they also talk about issues of uh, gender identity mm-hmm. over the course of it, and they start taking it really seriously. And the thing that I thought Vince Vaughn did really well in this was actually after the initial panic and him like chasing his friends around and they think he's trying to kill them, but he's actually mm-hmm. trying to convince them that he's you know a teenage girl. Uh, after that, there's actually a lot of real genuine moments from him. And after a mm-hmm. while, when they like have to save the guy Vince Vaughn has a crush on, uh, in high school from mm-hmm. the killer because he doesn't know Millie is the killer. Um, after that, he uh, tries to like convince him 
who mm. he is, and he has to confess that he has a crush on the guy. And in, they have in Vince a, Vaughn's body. In Vince yeah. Vaughn's body. It's, and they actually have a really wonderful, tender moment, like inside a car, <laughs> all done in one shot, mm. and it's all like kind of sweet and awkward. And it's a scene like right out of eighth grade. <laughs> and Vince Vaughn is really committed to it. I actually He's, thought he did a good job. In, in that one scene, I'll agree. But I think uh, that there's... scene is like the, the mm. lodestone on which the whole performance is based. Oh, okay. So I, it gave me a lot of wiggle room in the other, all the other but There's a lot of scenes where they interact with other characters, yeah. where Vince Vaughn has where he finds herself in these really bizarre scenarios mm-hmm. where uh, like she has to change clothes and has to get used to this big body. And I wish there had been more dialogue and physicality Yeah, uh, where we could just sort of see her getting used to being in this person. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I feel other actors would have committed to. Can you imagine this? Like, mm. I know he's not like an imposing killer character, but someone like Jim Carrey, yeah, who would really roll with the gigantic physicality of something like this. Now he'd he'd go way overboard with it. Well, I, but, it's interesting you put that up because yeah. I, I was thinking like another like magical. We have one twenty four hours when something crazy happens. Movie is liar liar. Yeah. Liar Liar doesn't and it's have... it's full of gigantic physicality. It's full of yeah. gigantic physicality. It's full of great gags. It's full of, you know, the character stuff is decent at best. It's not that kind of movie, it's but... A, it's a weirdly solid screenplay. If you rewatch that movie, like, it, like that movie it's, it's pretty tight, yeah. Um, but the thing with that movie is, yeah, he's got a case he's trying in court that day, whatever, but, like, he's not trying to prevent people from dying. The ticking clock isn't as intense. Mm. So you can have a lot of these asides, and you can have a lot of these comedic moments that, you know, are just not full of dramatic tension and pressure other than, will he tell the truth or not? Mm. Uh, In Freaky, they've got less than 24 hours to find the serial Mm. killer who's impersonating him while, or, or impersonating Gets so confusing. <laughs> find the serial killer in Millie's body oh. while Millie is in the body of a serial killer. And because Millie like told the cops and did like a police sketch before she fell asleep and they switched bodies, everyone knows that Vince Vaughn is the face of the killer. So everyone, so they, they don't have a moment hmm. to like enjoy or get used to or have a moment with that body that isn't pushing them forward because the plot is wound so tight. Mm. But, you know, but at the same time, there's a moment where, um, what, what's her name? Winnie, uh, the main character, uh, Millie, Millie, where yeah. Millie gets to have, uh, a moment with her mom oh, while yeah. she's in Vince Vaughn's body. Yeah. And they kind of have a conversation. And so there's enough, Time for moments like that, but they have to. They had to specifically engineer that because mm. the uh, Millie in Vince Vaughn's body mm. had to be hiding out because they couldn't leave this room mm. because people would recognize them. And they have to have a conversation through a door. They had to work overtime to make that moment in the script. Yeah, and I think it works. I think mm. you're right. I actually think it's a really good scene, but I just think you don't have all of that freedom. If you had too many scenes like that, the movie would like just the the rubber band would just sort of shrink down mm. and it wouldn't like make the paper clip fly across the room. It's not a great <laughs> metaphor, but you see what I'm, you see, yeah. see I'm getting at. Um, so it, it, I, I appreciate the premise and yeah. just like happy death day, it's more comedic than it is scary. Mm. Sure. People die in really horrible ways. It's an R rated film. There's actually but, uh, a lot of gore in this movie. Like oh, it's yeah. a really <laughs> gore. This totally could have been a PG 13 slasher. They did not do that. This movie is really gore. They, they don't want to, they don't want to do that. <laughs> Bless them. Honestly, it's, yeah. it's really gross. Like the first uh, kill, like my, my Michelle and I are watching the first kill. We're going like, what? Yeah, well done. It's, <laughs> it's really light. It's got a lot of really refreshingly queer undertones. Yeah. The scene where Vince Vaughn and mm. 
the boy Millie has a crush on have a conversation mm-hmm. and they kind of bond these two one's a woman in a man's body and they bond as two men. Mm. And that's, you know, this wonderful queer underpinning. Uh, but yeah, I feel like they, they didn't go all the way with it. Yeah. They, they went like three quarters of the way and said, that's good enough. I would say that. Okay. First off, I actually think this movie is more successful than you're giving mm. it credit for, but even if they did only get three quarters of the way, I think three quarters of a way in a concept, this sort of clever and fun and with this much, entertaining pizzazz Mm. is way better than ultimately. And this is a weird comparison, but then like something like Mank where they tried really, really, really hard. And even if they only got three quarters of the way, it feels like they got less than that. It feels like they just had such lofty ambitions and here they're here to entertain. Mm. We're going to have a good time. They raise some interesting themes. They mostly explore them pretty well. It's well shot, well timed, everything scares really, really work. Um, So I would much rather take this, Three three and a half star movie. Okay, uh, so I liked it more than you, but it's right. it is it is quite hmm. quite good. Well, let's move on and let's move on to a film that I haven't seen, but okay. you did because that's how life works sometimes. <laughs> I, I saw a bunch of movies this week. Tell me about Ammonite. Uh, Ammonite is uh, the latest film from director Francis Lee, who previously did a, a film called God's Own Country, which is about two men falling in love in a, an obscure gray part of England. Uh, Ammonite is about two women falling in love in an obscure gray part of England. Uh, Same part? Is it like shared universe? No, no, no. It's oh. different, different time because this is uh, eighteen. This is four of them. Oh, so um, this is a prequel. It's the uh, it's the eighteen forties. This is a prequel. It's a uh, boring stretch. Uh, sure, it's a <laughs> it's a boring stretch of beach by Dorset in England, and it follows the the merry adventures of Mary Anning, who is played by Kate Winslet, who was a real life. Uh, paleontologist Hmm. she had this uh stretch of beach that she would uh constantly explore and she would find fossils there Hmm. and uh there's a lot of scenes of her chipping through the rock to get to the treasure inside does she ever find ammonite that's uh yes indeed an ammonite it's uh like a a kind of animal um but uh, what what a metaphor that is of chipping through rock to find the animal inside uh (sighs) A fellow comes by and says, my wife is in dire straits. I need you to look after her. And she ends up going on a lot of long beach walks with a woman half her age, played by Saoirse Ronan. And over the course of nothing at all happening, they happen to fall in love. (laughs) And uh, I guess we have to take the movie's word for it. There's a really steamy sex scene in the middle. So I guess they fell in lust at some point. Ah. But... uh, (laughs) <laughs> Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan have absolutely no romantic chemistry whatsoever. It's okay. just a lot of uh, long extended scenes where there's not a lot of dialogue. We're kind of reveling in the dullness of it. And then, <laughs> and then uh, we're supposed to extrapolate from that, that these two women are forming this sort of heated passion simmering underneath. Now uh-huh. I admit that one of Ammonite's, uh, biggest misfortunes is that it came out after Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which was about two women walking along on a beach, staring at each other and falling in love, but you're feeling every goddamn aching moment well, of that romance. It's just an incredible, and, like, because it's sold on yeah, every level. And director yeah. Celine Sciamma was able to find the chemistry and find some interesting dynamic visual things and find a lot of beautiful poetry in Portrait of a Lady on Fire mm. to communicate just the emotional depths that are being felt in that movie. It's the best movie of last year. I love that movie. This one, like I said, we have to kind of take the filmmaker's word for it 
because yeah. uh, Catherine, Catherine, uh, Kate Winslet's character is so like she's tight. She's like Mr. Turner in that Mike Lee movie where she doesn't say a lot. Yeah. And she's kind of a grump and she's really cruel to all of the people around her. Saoirse Ronan is a little bit flighty and innocent, but really open to life's possibilities. And she's actually not as, quote, hysterical as her husband makes her out to be. And if they had formed some kind of weird, uneasy friendship, I'd be able to buy that because they're kind of two opposite types of people. Yeah. And yet somehow we're supposed to extrapolate that these two women are fine, are falling passionately in love. Uh, there's a big difference because one was shot by a gay man and one was shot by a lesbian mm. uh, between this and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Right. Uh, Celine Shiyama is able to find like the actual passion between the two women. She understands the way these women are relating in every single moment. Francis Lee shoots the sex scene like a man would. It's all very, for lack of a better term, porny. Like we're really mm-hmm. uh, supposed to be kind of taken aback at. Oh, oh, I do declare that as a sexy scene. Yeah. But it doesn't come from anywhere and it doesn't lead to anything. And by the time we get to the end where they have this sort of torturous part, which they inevitably must... I don't really care. I'm, it's I, it's drab. It's kind of even dour. It almost feels mean-spirited after a while. I'm, I'm always kind of fascinated by romances in movies that don't work. And I don't mean just like, because every once in a while it really does feel like everything was there, but the actors weren't selling it. Hmm. But then there are romances which on paper don't work, and you're just sort of fascinated by them. Like, um... In the 30s and 40s in particular, there were a lot of movies in which people would meet, spend one day together, and then get married. Mm. And I'm supposed to really root for them and not think that this is a terrible idea. Yeah. And I'm like, you don't know them! Like, you haven't discussed anything of consequence with them! You don't, All you know is that you, like, fought a saboteur together! <laughs> like... I mean, that's cool, but like, there's that, the reason we have that line in speed. Relationships based on intense experiences don't work. You have to talk, too, mm. and not just quip. So uh, I do love that that, that proved to be true. Yeah, that's like, true. In, in speed, speed 2, two they were Speed 2, up. they had already broken up. I, I, exactly. Yeah. And, there, and I bet after Speed 2, yeah. Sandra Bullock and Jason Patrick were still together after a while mm. because their relationship was based on relationship stuff, and then it was solidified by intense experiences. Exactly. Different thing. But there's the solidified by Willem Dafoe with leeches taking over a ship. Well, yeah. But there's the flip side to that coin. And I've noticed this a lot in movies in the 70s in particular, but also in like the 60s and 80s as well. Mm. Of movies in which protagonists, usually men and women, have no chemistry whatsoever. And they aren't written to have any chemistry whatsoever. Mm. They're just sort of depressed around each other and Mm. serious around each other and I spend a lot of time together and then halfway through this boring conversation about nothing they have like really violent passionate sex no not even violent or passionate half the time sometimes it's dispassionate depressing sex (laughs) but I'm supposed to believe that they're that this is real? And I'm like, I fucking don't. I, I buy that when it's based on sort of like mutual misery. Like they're just sort of collapsing into one another. Oh, yeah, and, but that's but, like Monster's Ball. And even hmm. that, there's passion. I'm talking about like a bunch of like really depressed, like like <laughs> like kind of like carnal knowledge kind of things. Yeah. Where like you're just sort of like, ah, well, actually even that one, hmm. that's actually a good movie. But like there's a lot <laughs> of like depressing hmm sex scenes or love scenes or love stories where like, I don't buy that you're together. I buy that you're They're, both like completely ambivalent about sex and decided to do it together, but you have no feelings of, uh, afterwards. Like you just, 
It doesn't have quite that vibe, okay. but I understand why you would why you would think of it. Because you make it seem like, like it just sort of happens after yeah. a while. Like that's what I was thinking when you described it. No, well, I mean there's scenes where they're constantly talking and then in one scene they just start making out. It's like mm-hmm. well, you didn't you didn't prepare me for this. Well, you, like you, I knew I knew the story, I knew mm-hmm. what was going on. What I'm no, getting at is it felt like there's a lot of movies in the 70s that took place entirely within the tonal matrix mm-hmm. of the last no. shot in the graduate. No, this, it's, where they're just like, <laughs> yeah, we're together, but it sucks. Like yeah. that's how I feel like a lot of the sex no, scenes that I've there, seen in the there's 70s. none of that sort okay. of they're not depressed characters. They're actually just sort of distant characters. Uh. They're not full of life. I, I say that one that uh, between Portrait of a Lady on Fire and this one was directed by a man. One was directed by a woman. I think much more notice, notably, mm. one was directed by a French person and one was directed by a Brit. So one is about mm. being very uh, like open and passionate French, and one is about being kind of laced up British. Uh, to, to play into a lot of the <laughs> cliches I've seen from films from those countries. Yeah. Uh, so it's about these people who are very laced up, who are not speaking their emotions, but we're not being given any sort of hints that there that there's cracks, that they're looking for a way out. They just sort of fall in love perfunctorially. Yeah. And that's sort of it. Well, it doesn't sound very good. No, it's, it's really not. I was kind of disappointed. Is the climb good? The climb is good. Oh, well, that's nice. The climb is quite good. Okay. Um, we are 50, 50 this week, aren't we? <laughs> this half is a film, uh, uh, written, directed by, and starring, uh, Michael Angelo Covino, who, uh, it's about a friendship between these two men, uh, in the opening scene, uh, Michelangelo Convino, who plays a guy named Mike, reveals to his best friend Kyle, played by Kyle Marvin, uh, who are playing kind of versions of themselves, uh, while they're on this long uphill bike ride in this one incredibly long take. So you can see the actors getting tired as they ride their bikes uphill. Mm-hmm. He reveals that he slept with his best friend's fiance. And that he essentially just ruined Are they still affianced or all, like before Pardon? they got married? This is right before they're about to get okay, married. And he, he reveals, okay, now that you're going to get married to this woman, I should reveal that uh, she and I have had, had like an on-again, off-again affair for a long, long time. And, of course, Kyle is incensed. Uh, they develop this really sour relationship. And they uh, he ends up splitting up the marriage. And Mike ends up marrying the fiancé. Fast forward a couple of years. Uh, Mike is now a widower. <laughs> oh. And Kyle is now uh, getting married to uh, Gail Rankin, uh, Marissa, played by Gail Rankin. Mm -hmm. And they have a little bit more of a strained but a much more believable relationship. And Mike re-enters his life. And it's about how Mike essentially is there to heal his own wounds, but perhaps see if he can patch up the friendship even though he ruined it and he's learned nothing. Hmm. This is a very fast, and uh, and the film will continue apace and will continue on for years and years as their relationships evolve and devolve over time, and will essentially be looking at the nature of adult male friendship over the course of many years, and how I think it captures something very very accurate hmm. about the way men relate to each other as friends, almost as a sense of weary obligation. Like, you are the man in my life. We are friends. I'm not exactly sure why, but we've been through so much that we just kind of have to keep on going. Is that how you you view me? Pardon? Is that how you view me? Absolutely. Aw. No, I'm kidding. Oh, okay. (laughs) Then it's not that accurate, then, is it, Whitney? 
No, but I I do think that this is the way uh, you you can o- open any vlog and find some sort of entry about how male friendships, um, adult male friendships, are hard to maintain. Yeah, how sure. adult men don't make friends. That's the cliche, isn't it? I find adults don't make friends. Yeah, like the adult, older you get, the harder it is to just randomly meet someone yeah, and then like hang you, out. It's like you're friends with your coworkers, but it's because you're coworkers. Yeah. You're forced um, into a situation it's, as it is. Cause, well, because you're not like out and partying well, with and, strangers as often. And if you're not, and if you're at a job where you don't have a lot of coworkers around you all the time, then you don't even have them necessarily. Yeah. So yeah. where do you meet people? Mm. Like, so I guess we'll go to church, we'll go so to these, gatherings, yeah. but it's hard. So it's about these two men who are kind of clinging to each other out of mutual friendship, even though they kind of hate each other and they are, kind of resent what the other represents in each other's lives. Mm. Uh, it, it's. Very sort of kitchen sink, this movie. Very, okay. very realistic, the way the characters talk. Uh, they give the kind of dialogue where you can tell they've been watching a lot of movies. There's They, they feel like big friendship moments are worthy of being like being had they want to have these big dramatic moments in their lives and they prepare speeches even though it's completely the inappropriate thing to say or they don't really know how to to read these big dramatic speeches it feels really really awkward in a lot of scenes there is a wedding scene and the fact that it looks a lot like the final scene from the graduate is not an accident okay uh i called it but for the wrong movie yeah (laughs) (laughs) weird and and uh it, it climaxes and comes to a rather fascinating conclusion uh, I think this film is is very smart, and I think it is very accurate. I think it's very confessional in a lot of ways. It mm. reveals a lot about men and straight male friendships that a lot of films don't go near. Usually, when you see male friendships in movies, they're bros. You know, they they believe in the bro code, and they have a very particular set of ma- like super masculine tropes that they keep on falling back on. Yeah. This is a movie about guys who you know try to fall back on those masculine tropes, but they're not really sure why. And it's more about how they are constantly trying to communicate things to each other and aren't really capable of that. And they stay around each other in the hopes that someday they'll be able to say that. Mm. So it, it's a really, really, it's, good. It's, it's a really wry sort of comedy. It, it's kind of slowly paced. It might yeah. not to be everyone's taste, but I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed great. The, the drama that was presented. Right, tell me about yeah. the life ahead. Well, who's to say what the life ahead is? Uh, the Life Ahead. Get well, it? You done? I'm done? Okay. The Life Ahead is a film on Netflix. It's directed by, uh, let me look up the director's name, Eduardo uh, Ponti. Eduardo Ponti is uh, Sophia Loren's son. Huh. And Sophia Loren is in this movie. Oh, how, I wonder how uh, we got her. <laughs> this what, is the, did he have an in? This is the first movie I've seen her in since Nine, back in 2009. It's been a um, while, yeah, hadn't it? I, I looked up her filmography. It turns out in the Italian dub of Cars 2, she had a voice. <laughs> she played an Italian voice in Cars 2. Nice. But not in America, so you'd have to see the Italian dub. Uh, in, in this film, she plays... Uh, Sophia Loren, who is still full of life and character and energy at age 86. Uh, she plays... Uh, Holocaust survivor who is also a uh, sort of a freelance social worker in uh, Italy. She, her perch, her purse is snatched by a young boy named Momo. Uh, He is played by an actor named uh, Ibrahima Gueye and he's like maybe 12 years old. He steals a bag of like candlesticks and tries to fence them with the local uh, Mm -hmm. underworld and he can't do it. 
Uh, he is apprehended and he has to be put in the care of a social worker. And as it turns out, Sophia Loren is the only one who's going to look after her and they d- look after him. And they start to develop a kind of Hollywood predictable relationship where she becomes sort of this grandmotherly figure to him, tries to save this at-risk kid from joining the underworld. He is constantly tempted to deal drugs because he's made some money that way in the past. And she is constantly stressing him and some other kids in his orbit to be better people. Meanwhile, her health is failing and she doesn't know how much longer she can look after this kid. Uh, it all plays out in a pretty predictable way, but what is the saving grace of the film is, of course, Sophia Loren, mm. who she is 86 years old and she communicates so much life with small expressions, with her beautiful performance, with the way she reads lines, the way she refers to uh, to things that happened in her past. You can tell that she's lived a life. And we know she has, because if you're familiar with Sophia Loren and you've watched her in movies that she was starring in way back in the 50s and 60s, then you know that she's lived this lo- very long, very interesting life. And she brings all of that into this movie in a way that keeps you completely engrossed even though you can tell where the story is going to go. Okay. So it's a little predictable, but really, really good. It, really, really good because of Sophie Loren. Okay. Hmm. Anything else to say? I don't no. really have anything to attribute there other than cool. <laughs> yeah. It's on Netflix now. Um, it's you can watch it. If you got a subscription. Okay. <laughs> Look, they can't all be long winded conversations. Well, you, you can bring something up if you want, but I didn't. I think is this a feel or end? Great. I, I described the film accurately. I think it, I, yeah. I have nothing. I didn't see this one, right. but you know what? I did see also on Netflix. Hmm. Jingle jangle, a Christmas journey. I've got spurs that jingle jangle, jingle jingle. jingle. <laughs> uh, that is not a Christmas song. Uh, jingle jangle is a brand new, bright, just ebullient Christmas musical. Uh, from writer-director David E. Talbert, who has actually been working for a really long time in the industry, and he's done a couple of Christmas movies already, including 2016's Almost Christmas, and also a film I didn't see called El Camino Christmas. What? Yeah. Okay. So he's he's, he's finding himself a niche. Uh, and Jingle Jangle is a, again, it's a big Christmas musical. It takes place on a big Christmas soundstage. Like, it looks like that fake... Uh, um, uh, uh, fake something. What's the what's the what's the Ebenezer Scrooge story? A Christmas Carol. It looks like the fake Christmas <laughs> Carol. What? <laughs> I'm not in a Shmoda, and I have oh, to remember it right only now. The most famous Christmas story ever written. That one. I was. I wanted. Well, I was thinking of the movie Scrooge, and I got stuck there. <laughs> it looks like the fake version of a Christmas Carol okay. from the movie Scrooge, like that big giant soundstage full of people in bright, colorful costumes who will all like break into dance at a moment's notice. Hmm. Uh, it is a cast that is almost exclusively people of color. It has music by uh, John Legend. And Ooh, okay. um, uh, Philip Lawrence from the Smeezingtons, okay. who did a lot of hit music. You look him up. Um, and uh, that's a cool pedigree. Mm-hmm. It's got a really cool cast. It's got uh, Forrest Whitaker, Keegan-Michael Key, Anika Nani-Rose, who was the voice of Tiana in uh, Princess and the Frog. Right. Uh, it's got Felicia Rashad. It's got the voice of Ricky Martin as an evil doll. Like... <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on here. Ricky Martin plays an evil doll. He plays an evil doll. <laughs> he plays an evil matador doll. That's pretty cool. It's These are all selling all right. points, right? And it's got this like very larger-than-life, over-the-top Christmas fairy tale quality. 
not unlike uh, the sort of more outlandish Rankin Bass stories. Mm-hmm. If you remember Rankin Bass's many holiday specials, they would do a couple of the famous ones where the story was kind of written for them, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the song was already there. Just got to follow that lead, yeah. basically. But then they would do something like Santa Claus is Coming to Town, where it's kind of like Batman Begins, but for Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And they have to kind of come up with a justification for every single part of the Santa Claus myth. Right. And it just, it gets a little ridiculous, but you kind of admired the wherewithal it took to get there. Right. Um, so it's got that kind of, kind of sprawling, larger than life quality. And in fits and starts, it's great. As a whole, it's not quite great, mm. but it's still a lot of fun. Okay. Um, so the story is about a toy maker, a fantastical Willy Wonka-esque toy maker who makes things that couldn't possibly exist. And he has a wife and a young daughter who love him very much, and he has just invented his greatest invention, a toy, a doll, that can walk and talk and think for itself and be your best buddy. And that is, of course, played by Ricky Martin. He also has an apprentice. He'll be, he'll be your buddy. Yeah, well, nah. Friend till the end. He'll be your good guy as yeah. your friend you're in. It's not end. quite that dark, but oh. yeah. Uh, and uh, he also has an apprentice who is trying to perfect basically the Victorian era. This is all site. This is all steampunk. Uh, the Victorian era like version of like a drone, like a flying little robot thing that'll fly uh. around, but he can't quite get it right. And he keeps trying to get the attention of Jeronicus Jangle, his employer, uh, to basically bring him into the big time and let him be a big inventor. Hmm. Dronicus Jangle is distracted by his family at Christmas time. He's distracted by his new project and he leaves his apprentice home alone. We're not going there, but he leaves his apprentice home alone with the evil doll that he doesn't know is evil yet. Hmm. And the evil doll who is upset. Someone said this doll to evil. Someone, the the doll is upset that they're going to mass produce him. He's like, there's only one of me. So he's got this big existential crisis. And he convinces the <laughs> apprentice to betray Jeronicus Jangle, steal his book of inventions. Okay. And they're going to work together and take over the toy business. All right. So they do. And then we cut to 26 years later. Jeronicus Jangle's wife died. He's estranged from his daughter. His shop has been destroyed. And all he's got left is a pawn shop where it once stood. He hasn't invented anything in decades. The okay. creditors are calling. And if he doesn't have a new invention by Christmas, they're all going to take all of everything he owns. And meanwhile, Keegan-Michael Key, is uh, the kid grew up, the apprentice grew up to be Keegan-Michael Key. Mm. He is the most popular toy maker in the world. And he has, unfortunately, as of this year, just run out of Dronicus Jangle's inventions. Like the big old book that he stole, it's like this big giant tome. Right. He ran he ran through them all, and all he's got left is that drone that doesn't work. And he's got to try to f- come back to Dronicus Jangle's place and like sneak around and steal it. Mm. Almost like the Christmas that almost wasn't. Um, meanwhile, Dronicus Jangle has a granddaughter now. Her name is Journey, because it's a Christmas journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, this sounds like it could be, like, delightfully whimsical. Yeah. Or completely insufferable. It's a little bit of both. And that's part of (laughs) its charm, and it's part of its problem. It's a real mixed bag, but I can totally see why people would love this movie, Mm -hmm. and I can totally see it making the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, because it's a little shrill. (laughs) But, uh... And and it's got enough plot for like three different Christmas specials. So, because we're not even to the main plot yet. Mm. Because on top of all of that... uh, 
Drunkest Jangle has a granddaughter. She comes to visit him. He doesn't even remember inviting her. And she's also like a genius inventor and she wants to help out with his inventions. And she finds an invention that Jeronicus Jangle didn't even invent. I think his daughter did. And it's actually a robot. And Jeronicus Jangle can't get the robot to work. But it turns out that the one ingredient he left out of the mixture was belief. So she's got all the belief. And now the robot works. And the robot also makes people fly when they're around it. And they don't really explain that very well but then Jeronicus mm. shows up and the robot stops uh. working because he doesn't believe in anything anymore and then Keegan-Michael Key steals the robot but the robot doesn't work because he doesn't believe in anything and then the kids have to take the robot back from then and it all keeps going and it's kind of a lot actually I was going to say do continue this is this is the most fascinating it's a lot, lot. it's a lot of movie mm. it is a lot of movie which is why it's weird that the movie seems to sometimes forget to show us stuff like, there's a scene at the end, and this movie doesn't end in a bloodbath. This is a happy Christmas movie, so <laughs> telling you that things end happily is not a spoiler. Mm-hmm. But there's a scene at the end where, you know, Forrest Whitaker plays Jeronicus Jangle. He's good. He actually sings really good. I didn't know that. Um, oh, yeah. He, uh, he, uh, uh... The robot starts working because he and like we need to get the robot to work right now, or it's really important. And he's just like, I believe. You know what? They forgot to ever have a scene in which he learned the importance of believing in things, <laughs> in which they clarify that you need to believe in this robot in order for it to work. It would be like if you know you found out that fairies were real and then one died and you collapsed to bring it back to life. Mm-hmm. Or, or, but you never actually learned that that helps fairies. So how did you know that? <laughs> so it's full of like weird little mm. things that get left out like that, and that's frustrating because it keeps it from being great. And then the music ranges from actually pretty darned awesome mm. to weirdly tonally off. Yeah, like there are sad songs that are like played kind of all happy and intense, and there are like. Songs that are supposed to like kind of be between like a father and a daughter, but they play more like like an estranged father and daughter, but they play more like a couple getting back together. Like the tone oh, just weird. feels weird. Okay. Like it's just not, it's just not quite right, and that's annoying. Um, and then the ending makes no sense because the ending is um, there's a framing device with Felicia Rashad telling the story to a couple of kids, and at the end we cut back to the framing device. The kids like you know, have a few revelations and Mm. none of them make sense. (laughs) None of Mm. them make sense. It would be like, um, I'm trying to think of a parallel here without just telling you what happens. It would be like, um, uh, okay. So imagine if Captain America uh, had like grandkids Mm. and he was telling his grandkids about all this Captain America stuff. And at the end of it all, they looked up at their granddad who was wearing a Captain America uniform and the shield is like hanging above the mantelpiece. Mm. And he's got like the infinity gauntlet there and shit. (laughs) And they just like, and the kids who are like 12 Mm. are like, wait a minute, were you Captain America and Captain America and a Captain America voice, like with his Captain America costume on says, well, yes, I was. And you're like, how would they not know? (laughs) None of this makes any sense. It's frustrating because so much effort went into this movie. This movie looks really pretty. Mm. This movie is really, the songs are, again, some of them are kind of off in terms of how they tell the story. The songs are good. The performances are quite good. The look of it is wonderful. Like, I actually hope this movie is up for, like, best production design and best costume design. It's really a good looking Christmas movie. Okay. Um, but it, the script is just trying to be so many things, and it never quite understands the 
proper th- like emotional through line of it all. So mm-hmm. it just gets distracted and sometimes forgets to give you big moments and it's a little frustrating, but I think the good mostly outweighs the bad. Okay. So I think if you're looking for a new uh, a new Christmas movie and um, it's been a while since you've seen a fun one, especially like a musical, I think mm-hmm. this is this is going to scratch that itch. Okay. Uh, but it is not an instant classic if you ask me, but eh, maybe give it time. Maybe I'll warm to it mm-hmm. uh, as time goes by. And uh, those are the new releases. Mm-hmm. Huzzah. That's it. Uh, so let's on the, do the critically acclaimed scale. Yeah, uh, okay. So once again, if you're new, the critically acclaimed scale, we review movies on a scale of C- to C+. Most movies are a C. That's average for a movie. C- is below average. And that can be everything from, we just generally don't recommend it to, it's absolutely terrible. Yeah. And then C+, is above average. And that's everything from, we just plain recommend it, yeah. to, we think this is the best movie ever made. Yeah. Uh, Jingle Jangle uh, is... I really wish I could give this movie a C plus because there's a lot of bits in it that I like, but it's a C. Uh, there's just it, it gets messy. There are bits that don't work, but it's way too effervescent. Hmm. It's way too bright and fun, and it's it's trying way too hard to be your best friend to be mad <laughs> at it. Uh, and I think it's overall it's it's actually quite sweet. Um, okay. It just it's frustrating because. Another couple of drafts on this thing. I really feel like it could have been an instant classic. Okay. Shame. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's kind of shame I'm, I'm happy to deal with. Uh, what is uh, The Climb? The Climb is a C+. Plus. Mm. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate the, the, the complexity and the honesty of a movie like The Climb. All right. Uh, the Life Ahead. Life Ahead. Um, <sighs> Sophia Loren is so good, I'm leaning towards C plus territory. Uh, it's your, it's your yeah, call. I, I can't make a decision a more, for you. Uh, like a more extraordinary film. I'll give it a C plus. Okay. Uh, just, you, you wouldn't hurt to seek this one out. It's it's really quite good. Okay, Ammonite. Ammonite is a C minus. That is, that is just a dull, dull movie. All right, Freaky. I'm going to give Freaky a C plus. Right. Uh, is it as quite as inspired as the Happy Death Day movies? Not quite, but I think it does a lot with its premise. I think uh, the performances are really good. I think it really scratches the slasher movie itch. It's been a while since we've had a really good one. Mm. Uh, and I really, really dig it. All right. And you? I give it a C. Okay. I, I think I appreciate the premise. I think they give it some energy. I just wish it had gone a little bit crazier and had some more interesting ideas to, to deal with. All right. And then last but not least, Mank. Mank is a not very passionate C. Mm. It's not a terrible film, but it's really not as interesting as it thinks it is. Ah, I'm really torn because I'm on this close to giving it a C minus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this close. But I think the good, the, I think the good balances the bad. Mm. And I think that there are enough shining moments, a couple of good performances in here. And I think, and again, I'm an easy mark for stories about old Hollywood mm. um, that I, I can't quite bring myself to give it a C minus, but it is sadly mm. not as impressive as the movie wants to declare itself yeah. to be. And that's frustrating because mm. again, you called your shot, you called a home run and mm. you hit like a double. Yeah. Like cool. You hit a double, but it's kind of embarrassing that you called a home run. Mm. So, Anyway, uh, and that is the new releases for this week. That leaves us with an old release of a movie we sure saw. <laughs> it's uh, Wild Wild West. Mm. It's, um, yeah, so we, we asked was... our patrons to pick uh, uh, mm. a movie on uh, HBO Max comedies, right? 
It was what it was comedy films. Yeah, we're asking for comedies on HBO Max, and we picked a bunch. Hmm. And I had never seen all of Wild Wild West. I caught a couple minutes of it on cable yeah. here or there, but it just it never quite happened. And so I was like, okay. I'll put this on the list, and maybe it'll be fun to revisit, you know, kind of a silly, not well-regarded 1990s blockbuster of yore. If you're unfamiliar with the film, uh, it was 1999, and Will Smith could do no wrong, or at least he hadn't yet. Uh, he had starred in Men in Black, which was a surprise mm-hmm. smash hit. Like, people thought it would do okay. No one thought it would be huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had done Independence Day. He was obviously the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He had hit, uh, hit albums and soundtracks. Uh, everyone loved him. Toast of the town. And he was reteaming with the director of Men in Black, Barry Sonnenfeld, to adapt uh, a television series from the 60s, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wild Wild West was a somewhat so, anachronistic Western adventure series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this was a formula that had worked well for Barry Sonnenfeld. He had brought the Adams Family movies into the 90s and into enormous popularity. Those movies they are were, great. They were uh, they they both real well. Both hits at the time. Adam's Family Values is now considered just a minor classic around I, Halloween time. I feel like Adam's uh, Family is too, but I think Adam's Family at some points are past it. They're really good. They're both really, really I, good. Yeah, I, I prefer the first. I'm not going to besmirch the second at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, second so this, one is Joan Cusack. It's got a slight edge. The, and uh, this was 1999, so CGI and movie special effects were like on the cusp of like g- like being completely unleashed. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot more CGI now. Uh, they could do uh, and achieve a lot more with movie special effects in 99 than they could just a few years previous. I feel like Titanic was the one that really kind of broke everything open. First Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. then uh, Independence Day. And yeah, so now well, we're and in, I think, into I wild, think the, the uh, 90s. The and, Star Wars special edition started to... Uh, oh, there you go. Also... It's going to blow open some doors as well. It was 97. Those came out. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, this was poised with a big, expensive Hollywood blockbuster based on a, a proven property, mm-hmm. starring one of the world's biggest stars, directed by a really hot director. Uh, and uh, Kevin Klein is no slouch. It yeah. also had Salma Hayek, who was already a big name. Uh, Kenneth Branagh played the bad guy. Kenneth Branagh wasn't like really packing into theaters, but he was a respectable presence because mm-hmm. he had done all those Shakespeare movies yeah, yeah, and everyone yeah. liked him. He added a little class to the joint. Um, yeah. Uh, so there was no reason to believe that this thing would fail. Uh, it, everything was set up just right. This is how these blockbusters get made. Mm-hmm. Uh, golly, I wish they had bothered to write a good screenplay. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe it film into, it good. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe make it look good. It's, it's yeah. has like sort of a steampunk aesthetic, but it doesn't really roll enough it's, it's with not it. It's having fun with it. Yeah. I, I watch this movie and I watch this movie. Like mm. the first 10 minutes of this movie are pure chaos. Mm. Uh, it starts off in the middle of, 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 okay. It's uh it's after the civil war. Uh, mm. Will Smith plays, um, is he, is he a federal mark? No, he plays is a federal marshal. He, he plays West, Jim West, Desperado, Rough Rider. No, you don't want nada. None of this. Right. Gun in this, brother. Run in I this. I apologize. Soldier. Oh, yeah. Hey, he's a U.S. Army captain. <laughs> he's a U.S. Army captain, and he is currently having sex in a water tower, uh, which cannot be... <laughs> it sound like he's doing that right now. <laughs> well, he was. At the, at the be- yeah. When you talk about movies, yeah. they teach you this when you like, write about movies. Um, stuff that happens in movies is always present tense. Yeah. So, Will Smith... Is having sex in a water tower is how Wild Wild West opens. Mm. 
Uh, he's having sex in a water tower, but wouldn't you know it, the people he was here to arrest have just arrived. But oh, he's having sex in that water tower. Mm-hmm. And then the water tower falls over and he has to beat them up while he's naked. Meanwhile, <laughs> the bad guys are also at a brothel across town. And uh, Ted Levine, who's got like, and this is an amusing image, he's got like a phonograph for an ear because he lost his ear in the war. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he has this little funnel sticking out of the side of his head, which they'll, and they'll do an RCA joke with that later yeah. on. Uh, but he is carousing with mm-hmm. his buddies, his ex-Confederate buddies. And uh, Kevin Klein is dressed as a woman, mm-hmm. as one of the sex workers at this brothel. And, she's, and uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Klein seduces Ted Levine and then hypnotizes him with her crotch hypnotizer. And, um, no, it's her breast hypnotizer. No, no, no. It's in, it's in the, it's in the, oh, belt. it's in his belt it's, buckle. It's in You're the, right, it's yeah. in like the garter buckle. Yeah. So like, it's right there. And so Ted Levine is staring at Kevin Klein's crotch and he's hypnotized into thinking that he's a dog. Meanwhile, uh, Will Smith, who has just rolled in on a big old cart of uh, nitroglycerin, uh, jumps in through the window uh, tries to kill Ted Levine, tries to pay Kevin Klein uh, for his time because, well, he's a sex worker, or so he thinks. And uh, then uh, just when everything, everyone's fighting each other and they realize that they're both on the same side and they're both working for the law, the entire place blows up and nitroglycerin. And I'm thinking to myself, did Barry Sonnenfeld forget how to direct? Because <laughs> like he didn't used to... This is actually like hard to follow. Just all of the the, the awkward cutting, mm. the unclear angles and geography, the the it's just such a fast paced, not interesting opening to a movie. A lot of stuff is happening, and I care about none of it yet. Mm. Well, the uh, the this was the meet cute between the two heroes. Sure, between uh, what is the name? Artemis Fowl. Artemis Hunt. Hunt. Artemis Hunt. I'm oh, sorry, oh. Artemis Gordon. Artemis. I was Gordon. looking. I was looking at the Wikipedia page just so I could remember everyone in the oh, cast, okay. and it said uh, Jim West and Artemis Gordon hunt for ex-Confederate oh. general. So I thought it was Artemis Gordon <laughs> hunt Art- for a second. Uh, no, yeah. it's, Artemis, so it's about Artemis it's about how Gordon. it's a meet cute between uh, Jim West and Artemis Gordon, who are both sort of like freelance uh, crime fighters at this point. Well, they're working for the government, and, but yeah. they're on their own recognizance. Exactly. They're so doing whatever they do. Jim West is is you know he's the desperado. He's the one who goes in with guns blazing. Whereas Artemis Gordon is the button down scientific guy who uses gadgets. Yes, and, and he's got many uh, uh, acronistic mm, gadgets yeah. like explosives and trains with. Panels that revolve and open a, and sleeping gas bombs and, and and there's a lot there's cute ways to do that. I'm watching uh, the Adventures of Briscoe County Junior right yeah. now, and they, there are all kinds of cute anachronisms in that show, and they're always played as like little gags. Mm. It's like, hey, would you like a donut? Sure, kid. What's your name? Duncan. My name is Duncan. Would you like a Dunkin' Donut? That sort of thing. Yeah, uh, it's for the audience. It's, not the it's for the audience. Yeah. It's a little wink, and it's like just one tiny gag. And this yeah. this film is lousy with that kind of crap, and yeah. it's all really bad. One day we'll have televisions. Won't that be wonderful? Says Kevin Klein. He doesn't come across as like a, a fun gadgety kind of He's guy. He's not a visionary. You know, what you need you need somebody like Charles Martin Smith. Somebody who's like a like a little bit more slight. Who isn't like mm. physically like Kevin Klein's a tall, handsome man. He's a confident performer. Mm-hmm. You need somebody who can play. A little bit more of a shrinking violet. You know who would have been great? Hmm. Michael Jeter. Michael Jeter. Michael would've Jeter was still alive. Michael Jeter would have been wonderful. I mean, he's not like leading man, but like yeah, he would have well, been wonderful. Yeah, he usually plays like the sidekick types. Yeah. But yeah, he would have been fine in that role. Yeah. I'd love to see him like try to match Will Smith's charisma. Wouldn't that have been interesting? Oh, God, that would have been wonderful. Uh, actually. <laughs> but uh, they eventually end up going to the White House and are hired by Ulysses Grant, 
who is also played by Kevin Klein. Specifically because they wanted to do a gag multiple times in which Kevin Klein, using his advanced makeup effects, impersonates Ulysses S. Grant. And what they used to do, this is so weird, the original like Mission Impossible movie did this too. Uh-huh. In Brian De Palma's, actually not the original Mission Impossible movie, because that was actually Mission Impossible versus the mob in the 60s, but... The second Mission Impossible movie, the one everyone calls the first Mission Impossible movie, the one directed by Brian De Palma, opens with an elaborate scene in which they need to impersonate, I think it's a senator or or some kind of diplomat. Hmm. And uh, Tom Cruise is going to have to impersonate him by wearing his face. Rather than just have the actor who isn't Tom, have the actor playing the senator just mm. pretend to be Tom Cruise for a bit and then like you do a sharp cut and he pulls off a mask and it's Tom Cruise. Yeah. They decided to have Tom Cruise play the senator or whatever it was mm. under old age makeup. Well, so I, that and, it would clearly be, you know, that it would look like makeup was applied to make him look like it. Well, and from what you I know? understand in the first Mission Impossible movie, mm. That that the senator didn't exist. Like he was always Ethan Hunt. Mm-hmm. Like that was one of his no 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 no, no 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 because we show him on the, on the news. TV they, and that was Tom Cruise in makeup. They show him on the TV and that's the then that's the thing that's weird. Hmm. It's not supposed to be Tom Cruise in makeup. It's supposed to be a real guy who hmm. happens to look like Tom Cruise in makeup, which makes it easier to believe that Tom Cruise could impersonate that guy rather oh, than just saying you your know, makeup I, is magic. I, I was which they would the, do later. I was under the impression that MI that the mission IMF had like a senator in their employee and it was secretly Ethan Hunt. No. So whenever they needed like a senator <laughs> to do stuff for them, they no. had a guy on the inside no, no, no. And, it, and it was Tom Cruise. No, it's this it's this gag. It's just to oh, make gosh. it more plausible that the actor mm. could impersonate the guy rather than just saying make so, him yeah. his magic so kevin klein is playing ulysses s grant because they didn't want to like bother hiring i don't know who could play another ulysses actor s. Grant. to play ulysses grant br- bother bringing in jeff bridges for a day or and then just it, have you know them pull off a mask and sharp cut it's kevin klein wouldn't it have been fun if kevin klein was playing ulysses grant and there's no disguise element to it we just have one actor playing both roles for fun yeah that would have been great. That could have been fun as well, but, but the, they, they, they did it. And it's distracting yeah. and it's weird. It's actually distracting, not just that it's obviously Kevin Klein. Yeah. Even if you can buy for a second that it's not Kevin Klein, it's distracting that even if like you're fooled in the audience and you don't mm. realize Kevin Klein is playing two characters, it's distracting that they didn't get a bigger actor to act mm. opposite Will Smith and Kevin Klein. Because I know they're big actors. Kevin Klein is an Academy Award. Will Smith is one of the biggest stars in the world at the time. And mm-hmm. the only person we could get to play their boss is you're looking for someone with star power, right? Someone like, that's like in True Lies when you find out who Arnold Schwarzenegger's boss is and it's Charlton Heston. And you go, yeah, okay, I buy that he would be bossing Arnold Schwarzenegger around. Mm-hmm. He's only in it for like two scenes. But you buy it instantly because of the casting. So when the casting is just some random guy and you don't realize it's even supposed to be Kevin Klein, doesn't sell that moment. <laughs> when you have small roles, the people you choose to play those roles matter. Especially if they're a recognizable actor, because it tells you how important the role is. Weird. Anyway, they're assigned to work together, even though they don't like each other, and they get on their train, and they gotta go to... Uh, well, they're tracking down... Uh, what, his name is Arliss Arliss Loveless. Arliss Loveless, played by Kenneth Branagh, mm-hmm. an ex-Confederate soldier. This is just after the Civil War, mm-hmm. uh, so it's during Reconstruction, Racism is alluded to, although Jim West never seems to be the brunt of it, except for a, quote, funny lynching scene. Oh, there's like a moment, there's uh, a couple of moments here or there where, like, mm-hmm. you can't see the president, you should, yeah. you, you you don't belong here, and of course Jim West, like, you know, powerhouses his way through it. But yeah, there's, 
and we we find out that Jim West's family was killed during the Civil War, mm. and that's why he's out they, to kill Arliss Loveless. In but, that opening chaotic scene, they almost say the N-word, but yep, they're cut off. Because Will Smith kicks the crap out of yeah. somebody, which no, is fine. Here, here's you know? what I appreciate about... He should uh, kick the crap out of somebody. This that. was the late 90s, and the way to address sort of systemic racism at the time was to sort of dismiss how backward it was. Mm-hmm. So when we have instances of racism, it doesn't have any kind of hard edge because Will Smith is a modern man and he can sort of, he has this sort of wonderful fuck you attitude in uh, in the scenes where he has to confront racism, where people are racist to his face. Mm-hmm. And he responds in kind. He is just a dick right back to them. This is not Django Unchained. He's not going to start, you know, murdering Confederates, but uh, you can tell he kind of wants to. Mm-hmm. You can tell that that's sort of a, a, something percolating behind Will Smith's eyes, that they're actually, I, I feel like Will Smith wanted to address it a little bit more directly, but the film is trying to play it off for laughs, like how buffoonish these people are. And given where we are today, we can see what a, how dangerous an attitude that is, or just sort of how backward and, and old fashioned it seems all, uh, now. Yeah. But uh, Arliss Loveless is an ex-Confederate who uh, was blown apart in the war. Yeah. He uh, lost the bottom half of his body. He only li- mm-hmm. he only exists from the waist up. Uh, he's missing one of his lungs as well, he says. Like, he lists a few organs that yeah. are missing, actually. That he is alive is a medical mm-hmm. marvel. Um, and he, and of he, course, and he's, he travels he's around, And he's, yeah, he's incensed about uh, his war injuries. He travels around in a steampunk wheelchair Mm-hmm. And he has an evil plan, something to do with spiders. We'll talk about the spiders in a minute. Uh, to, gotta... <laughs> to essentially uh, essentially get revenge for the fall of the South. That's mm-hmm. his big plan. He's also got uh, a whole group of uh, sexy uh, henchpersons. Uh, they're all uh, beautiful women, mm-hmm. and uh, they all have names that sort of evoke... What they're going to be doing. The so, like, expert is Munitia, for yeah, instance. Uh, the really strong one is Amazonia. Mm-hmm. And the one who literally is only there to read lips when people are talking far away is called Miss Lippenreader. Uh huh. Well done. Arliss Loveless is a, uh, a character that's kind of taken from the television series. Uh, in the television series, Loveless was actually. Uh, um, Oh, what was the... Hold on. I want to make sure I get the guy's name right. Uh, Dr. Miguelito Quixote Loveless. Okay. Uh, played by Michael Dunn. Uh, he was a little person. And um, yeah, he was the mm. main bad guy for the majority of the series. It's, it's mm. my understanding that they did a TV movie in the 80s in which he was replaced by his son, played by Paul Williams. Mm. Uh, rather than get a little person actor for this, I, th- I think they were going to, and then something happened and they switched the character out with, uh, Kenneth Branagh. They decided to make Kenneth Branagh, uh, disabled. Uh, yeah. Uh, over the course of the film, Jim West and Arliss Loveless, Loveless plays a Confederate and a horrendous racist. Mm. Whenever they meet and talk... Loveless says a lot of really racist shit, cringeworthy racist shit, to which our hero, Jim West, retorts with really cringeworthy ableist shit. Yep. That's what he has. Not that he's that's, a racist. That's the dialogue. Not that he was a Confederate who mm. lost the war. Not that he's evil and wrong. It's that he doesn't have legs. Mm. That's 
what the movie really wants you to focus on is that our is that our hero's heroic ableism is better than our villain's villainous racism. Racism is also bad. Ableism is also bad. And every single one of these scenes is just like, you guys, how did you whiff this that bad? And on top of it all, uh, we missed um, the one uh, hench person that Loveless has that defies the uh, naming convention is played by Bai Ling. Mm-hmm. A really underappreciated actor, I feel, who often gets in a lot of rather unfortunate roles because Hollywood is often very cruel to people of color. Mm-hmm. And she plays a character named Miss East because to, she's from to, the East. To balance Jim West, who uh-huh. lives in the Wild West. And there are some how, racist how music cues to let you know that she's... She's not from America. Could have done without the gong sound effect. Oh my God. Um, yeah. The plot continues apace. Um, the, it's eventually revealed that the villain's plot was oh, oh, to... We, uh, we skipped over the, the funny lynching. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In order to distract Arliss Loveless and his uh, hmm. crowd of uh, Confederates who hope the South will rise again, uh, Ar- uh, not Arliss, um, Artemis declares but points out that Will Smith is there and that he's done something somewhat untoward by mm. accident to a woman who he thought was Kevin Klein in costume. And so he just suggests that they go outside and hang Will Smith. And then Will Smith has to talk his way out of it. And part of his speech is how he totally gets why all of the people here uh, liked slavery. And mm. you're watching this and you're just going, Jesus Fucking Christ. How did Will Smith feel about that dialogue? Jesus. Wow. What a, what a miscalculation. I mean, I, it's weird though, because like you cast Will Smith and you put him as a Western hero Hmm. in this era, you're going to have to address the elephant in the room, which is he would encounter a lot of racism. Hmm. Or you could choose not to and just have it be a fantasy world in which things are better than they would have been because Mm -hmm. we want to amplify the heroism of people of color and not constantly remind everyone of the ugliness. There are potential flaws in both approaches, but this like trying to have it both ways thing where like we're kind of we're going to acknowledge racism, but we're going to try to make it funny is not working for me at all. And yeah, it doesn't read very well. The, the racists are meant to be the butt of the joke, but it's also kind of kowtowing to their attitudes a little bit. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really, really gross. Uh, and luckily they get out of the lynching uh, because <laughs> Artemis Gordon has invented an elastic hanging rope. Yeah, it turns out it was this all a ruse. And, and once Jim yeah, West like falls, it's just going to spring hang- him across the, the building and he'll be fine. I mean, this is like it's like something out of a Mad Magazine in the '60s. It's like an so, ill-advised so un- Mad Magazine. So in the unbelievably 60s. tasteless. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's that funny thing. Uh, they have a super train that they travel around in that's all tricked out with gadgets, and they can hide things beneath mm. the floor, including people. It's mm. piloted by M. Emmett Walsh. Yeah, who I wish played a bigger role in the movie. All he really gets to do is be M. Emmett Walsh, and in mm. one scene, have a moment of gay panic where he's confused and he thinks Kevin Klein and Will Smith might be interested in mm. each other sexually. 
Thanks, and, and, movie. And he freaks out a little bit as he walks past the door. Real so classic. yeah, some gay panic in there yeah. as well. Meanwhile, they rescue Selma uh, Hayek from Arliss Loveless because he had literally had her in a cage in his bedroom and was going to use mechanical devices to have his way with her against her will. Family movie. He, and he, he even talks about how he's like constructed sex legs. Yeah. Like... You think I, I have like all this mastery of machinery. I'm a steampunk guy. You think I can't create sex legs? And I'm like, oh my okay, God. on one hand, I appreciate your ingenuity. On the other hand, you're not- using that in the darkest possible way. Mm. And then she, they, they rescue her, of course. Artemis and, and Jim are both very infatuated with her. And Salma Hayek has such a rough role in this because the movie doesn't know what to do with her. Yeah. And I don't mean like she just doesn't get to do a lot. I mean, every time she does something, mm. it's confusing. Yeah. Like, you can't tell, is she a double agent? Mm. Is she betraying them? Is she actually into Jim? Is she actually into Artemis? Is she, like, another agent from, like, another thing and they haven't revealed it yet because she's undercover? There's a scene in which Salma Hayek, again, like, PG-13 movie, shows off her naked rear end. And both the men decide not to tell her because ogling women is okay. No, they're, like they're, this. They're, they're mollified by her bottom. Uh, oh, yeah. Good night. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. And, and when you finally find out, like at the end of the movie, like everything mm. there was to know about her, it turns out that like almost nothing she did made any sense mm. at all. And I'm willing to bet you anything her character was being dramatically rewritten over the course of the film because it feels like one of those. Yeah. They finally track down Arliss Loveless. Arliss Loveless, like, incapacitates them on their train, and they wake up with these, like, magnetic collars on their necks that are, like, they, attracting they tra- flying razor blades. Which we saw in an opening. And yeah. The, oh, they, yeah, we saw a scientist get beheaded in the opening scene. And- oh, yeah, there's a scene in which Artemis has a severed human head on a desk with a light shining through the open head cavity, mm. through the eyes, so you can see the last thing the person saw before they died. It's a cool visual. But it's a yeah. cool visual, and that was actually a theory people used to have. It made no mm. sense, but it was a theory people used to have. But it's also really grim compared to how light and tone a lot of the rest of the movie is. Like, it's mm. way darker, R-rated mm. kind of content concept yeah Yeah, i don't like it either cats hey hey no cats yeah they're angry about wild wild west i don't like it rightfully so Uh, yeah the big plot arliss loveless wanted to split up america between himself and european powers hence dissolving the united states it would be the the united states of america and it would give like new england back to england he would give florida back to spain he'd give the louisiana purchase back to france he'd give Notice new he gives, mexico back to mexico and he, he would take everything else to, for himself he gives none, none of it back to and of course this was post-war so they're all already fulfilled manifest destiny at that point yeah but they're using a modern map of america so that's an anachronism but um yeah uh manifest destiny another racist term by the way oh uh, yeah but uh racist concept yeah i noticed that he gave none of it back to you know, the, the, South. Na- the native people <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, yeah that's true yeah well again he's super fucking racist yeah. didn't he yeah. yeah so uh so yeah, he was meeting with all of these European dignitaries, one of whom was played by Ian Abercrombie, who I know from Army of Darkness. Who and, I thought was going to do of more. Prey. No, he's just sort of sitting there. He's just there. Like, I, he's yeah. Ian Abercrombie. He was like a character actor. He was on Seinfeld and stuff. Yeah. I, I thought he'd get some lines at least. But uh, when he's about to give, when he's about to enact his big war plan, Jim West appears in drag with a veil and seduces him on stage. In with one of flamethrower breasts. In one of the most embarrassing scenes in film history. Well, at least and in Will Smith's career. Well, and, okay, you're right. In Will Smith's career. In yeah. this, an embarrassing scene in a film that is, on the whole, very embarrassing. Mm-hmm. 
An embarrassment of embarrassments. <laughs> Not riches, just more embarrassments. Uh, we learned that Arliss Loveless has an 80-foot steampunk tarantula. Mm-hmm. There's a story about this tarantula. It's a weird and involved story, mm. but we're going to try to uh, keep it as simple as we can. So very, very briefly, Kevin Smith uh, has spoken at length about this. He did a draft of the Superman movie that was never made. Mm-hmm. Superman Lives. Mm-hmm. It was going to be uh, about the death of Superman in the comics and mm-hmm. then how he comes back and saves the day. Right. Uh, and uh, it was going to be about him versus Lex Luthor and Brainiac. Tim Burton uh, was on to direct. They brought in uh, various screenwriters to work on the project. Nicolas Cage was going to be Superman, Nicola, which was yeah. weird. They even casting. did some like screen tests in the costume. You can find Nicolas Cage in that outfit. The costume looked weird. <laughs> it, was, it, looked, it was purple. It, it's like a deep blue. It's but, a yeah. weird looking costume. Um, but yeah, they... So the, this big ambitious Superman project ended up uh, falling apart. There's a whole documentary about it called The Death of Superman Lives. Uh, but Kevin Smith talks about how he was asked to take a pass at the screenplay mm-hmm. uh, because he was a bit he was a known a big comic book fan. And he went in to meet with the executive producer of the project. John Peters. John Peters is his name. And John Peters said, I want you to write this Superman thing and I have some ideas for you. I want these specific things. These you, The movie absolutely has to follow these guidelines. Yeah, and, and the guidelines were... He can't have a Superman costume. Yeah, he says he doesn't like Superman flying around in the costume. So none of that. No costume, and uh, no flying, and he has to fight a giant metal spider. Yeah, and he, he specifically said, Kevin Smith said, he wanted a scene where Superman was like in a gladiatorial arena and these big bullpen doors open and a giant spider comes out and he fights the spider. And Kevin Smith says, this is bonkers. Mm. but okay, you know, I'm, this is a big studio picture. I'm going to take a pass at it. Yeah. When you're a screenwriter, you say, yes, I can do that. That's your only response. Yep. To whatever, whatever the note is, you say, yes, I can do that. So he did it. He like, he created a, a like a giant Iron Man suit for Superman. Like he was fighting in like in this aliens type thing. Iron Man suit. I think it was just a version of his black suit from the Superman. And, and anyway, like he, he was somehow robbed of his powers and yeah. he had to like put on this mechanical device and he fought the spider in the pit. And that script ended up getting completely scrapped. They yeah. didn't use a, a, any bit of it. And with good cause, I've actually yeah. read that script. There's a couple of good bits in it. It's not good. Yeah. You can find it. It's online. Yeah. Um, the funny gag, February serves. I think there was a gag in which Lex Luthor was talking to Brainiac and he said, as I've been trying to synthesize kryptonite this entire time, and the closest I've come is a chia pet, and he invented the chia pet, <laughs> trying, <laughs> trying to invent kryptonite. That's a very Kevin Smith a line. line. Yeah. Uh, so evidently, however, once Kevin Smith was off this project, he he was so baffled by this need that what's his name John Peters John Peters John Peters need to have Superman fighting a spider. A giant something robot about, spider. Something about a giant robot spider was in the stuck in this guy's craw. He, he was going to make it, it happen by and, hell or high water, damn and, it. And, you know, Kevin Smith moved on to other things. John Peters moved on to other things. He ended up as one of the executive producers on Wild Wild West. Uh, and, and God damn it, he got his giant mechanical spider. And they, it makes no more sense in this movie than <laughs> like, it did in Superman. But Arliss by God, it's in there. Evidently just has a spider fetish. Like, it, the uh-huh. spider is his evil symbol. It's what's, all his buzz saws. What's and weird is... Uh, he, deci- he decided to make his gigantic death machine an 80-foot steampunk tarantula with cannons. What's really, really weird is there is uh, an episode of... Hold on a second here. I want to say... Uh, there is an episode of Batman the Animated Series. Uh, and it actually follows this kind of thing kind of weird because mm. 
Uh, it's actually a flashback. It takes place in the Old West where uh, Ra's al Ghul, who's immortal, and like his son were doing some evil thing. Mm-hmm. And um, Jonah Hex, who eventually had his own movie, and I think he was on Legends of Tomorrow as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he has to save the day because they have to save American expansion from a giant metal monstrosity. I think that one was actually like a giant like Zeppelin but okay. it's very, 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 very similar. Hmm. They just add legs to it, and it's the exact same story, the exact same <laughs> setup. So, like somewhere at the intersection of Superman Lives and Wild Wild West is this episode Showdown from 1995. <laughs> okay, and it's actually a good episode. But anyway, um, Arliss kidnaps Grant again. And they have to fight this giant spider. There's a sequence in which Will Smith has to fight a bunch of cyborgs living in the belly of the spider. And there's a weird bit where he's like fighting these guys and he's hitting them with a giant wrench, but their heads are made of metal. So it doesn't do anything. And then he like hands the guy the wrench. He's just like, here, you try. And he gives the guy the thing and the guy lifts up the wrench to hit Will Smith. And then he's suddenly electrocuted and dies. They never actually show him like what he hits. Like (laughs) touching electrical wire. In fact, you can actually see in a wide shot. He didn't touch anything. And they never established that there was anything up there. It's just terrible storytelling. Just awful. Mm. And then in the end, they fight and they save the day. And everyone's Mm. like, ah. And then they have that scene at the end of Loaded Weapon 1 where like, Grant comes to our mismatched heroes and, you know, tells them they should work together more. And Will Smith and Kevin Klein just look at each other and go, sequel. And then they sort of wander off into the desert on their giant spider, which they have now. Uh, which they'll presumably return to the American army. I would presume. Mm-hmm. That's why we have so many giant spiders nowadays. Also, they invented flight, like, in an afternoon. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. It's like when Ator invented, <laughs> invented a hang glider and, like, an anodized aluminum frame in five minutes. Ator flies with his stupid contraption. Well, well, West sucks. It's, it has deserved its bad it, reputation. It's, it's really... It's badly paced. Uh-huh. It's really badly edited. The, the comedy isn't funny. Uh, there's no charm or wit to it. There's not much of a point to it. Mm-hmm. And... If you're looking for uh, like a, a big blockbuster that has a lot of steampunk trappings, this might be the best you're going to get, just in terms of design. Uh, I think live I action, that, maybe, because yeah. I think we had Treasure Planet, which is actually a way better version of yeah, this. There's Treasure Planet, there's, the future, there's an anime film called Steam Boy, um, but yeah. yeah, the whole idea that steampunk was going to break through never really happened, except in this movie. This was a big, 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 big budget mm. Hollywood mainstream blockbuster. And it is often ignored because it sucks. It's really, really, really quite bad. Mm. All right, we got to go. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with reviews of other things. Mm. Uh, the poll is up. It came up a little late, so we don't have a winner yet yeah. uh, for this week. We decided that since we decided to do, uh, you know, ultimately decided to do a pretty bad Western uh, for uh, yeah. this week that we would do, hopefully, like a more interesting Western uh, for next week. And this time we decided the streaming service to be and as of right now, the current leading winner, and it's looking likely it's going to win, is Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. I am sorry. See, you did it again. I didn't mean to. <laughs> you didn't have to pick that. You put the bad one on and everybody gravitates All right, to so it. So I guess we have to watch that this week. Right. So thank you, everybody, for listening to that. Thank you, every one of our patrons who votes for future episodes, who keeps the show going. We're incredibly grateful to you. If you want to join up, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a ton of exclusive shows over there. Big backlog, ready to download as soon as you sign up. 
by all means, we'd love to see you. You can also email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. We're on Twitter, at Criticallyacclaimed. I am at William Viviani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what?